This podcast is brought to you by WeTransfer, the world's largest file transfer service. Since 2009, WeTransfer's free platform has been enabling creative thinkers around the world. Visit wetransfer.com today and see for yourself. Hi, I'm Jeremy Leslie from Mag Culture. Welcome to What About, the podcast about how initial ideas develop into the fully formed stories we find in magazines. I like to imagine the writer at the editorial meeting leaning forward to convince his colleagues of an idea, saying, What about? Each episode of What About looks at one story from one magazine. We open with me talking to the editor about the origins of the story, and then we get to hear it, read in full. We're focusing on the individual story, that essential building block of magazine making, and the editorial work that goes into creating and finessing it. For this episode of What About, I'm joined by Anja Aronowski Kronberg, founder and editor of annual fashion magazine Veshtoy. This self styled journal of sartorial matters combines academic rigor with subtle page design to present an intelligent, accessible critique of the world of fashion. We started off talking about the origins of the magazine's name. It's so funny because everybody pronounces it differently. Yes, uh-huh. But actually, Vestoy means clothing uh-huh. in Esperanto, this uh-huh. language that nobody speaks anymore yeah, or perhaps yeah. ever spoke. But I really liked that Esperanto was this idealistic project, a kind of world language that mm-hmm. was supposed to unify everybody. And I quite liked that idealism part. Yeah. I, this is something, I mean, sure. yeah. I, I, I see myself a bit like as an idealist, so... Yeah. And um, <laughs> we're on the seventh issue mm-hmm. of Vestoy. Uh, and it's now, if I said it's a fashion magazine, that's rather limiting in, in the description because it's more than that. But w- when I say fashion magazine, perhaps listeners are going to think, oh, it's, it's large, glossy pages full of full bleed imagery and lots of the latest clothes and, and highly priced state of the art haute couture. It's slightly different to that, isn't it? I've got a copy here. Um, do you want to just sort of talk through? what it is and how it looks. Absolutely. You know what, I, I quite, in a way, I actually like that Vestoy is described as a fashion magazine mm-hmm. because a fashion magazine doesn't have to be that image-led, large, glossy uh, thing that you just described, that it can also be something that, like Vestoy, comes out mm-hmm. once a year, has no advertising, it's text rather than image-led, does not have uh, conventional fashion shoots. I mean, talks about fashion more... As a cultural phenomenon, I suppose, uh-huh. that I want Vestoy to be a place where readers can go to understand better the relationship that we have to the clothes that we wear mm-hmm. and what our garments say about any given culture or society at any point in time. As I said, we've got a copy here and it, it is, it's a bookish format. Mm. The, the format changes every issue slightly, doesn't it? it yeah, it has a, changed a, a lot. But now, Adopting to yeah, its, its theme. Exactly, but, that's, that's um, how we've done it in the past. Now we've, we've used a similar uh, format for the mm-hmm. last couple of issues, just experimenting with uh-huh. the, or, you know, having a, a more consistent language uh, mm-hmm. for a few issues. Let's see how that goes. But, but, mm. but there's, um, there's 290-odd pages, so mm. th- there's a lot in it. It comes out once a year. It's themed, and the issue seven here is on masculinities. Now, again, for the listener, if you haven't seen it, you, what we're painting is quite an academic, serious, well-researched, proper publication. But there is on the cover and on the inside cover a very simple, flippant visual joke um, of, mm. where's the giant from? He, he, it's he, the Cern Avas giant. Yes, but it looks like a David Shrigley doodle yes, or something. Yeah, That's yes. what so, I like. There's this doodle of this naked man waving a big club with a huge erection. And then on the inside, 
the erection has gone flaccid. So there's, yeah. a, there's immediately just a very simple visual joke that's going on there, which kind of sets a tone that you might not expect for such a serious academic journal. That's right. No, I, I want the story to be serious and mm-hmm. academic, but I want it to be funny as well and a bit irreverent mm-hmm. and um, a bit unexpected. And every issue is divided in different chapters. So mm-hmm. we have our theory, we have prose, we have fiction, and we have interviews, mm-hmm. and then we have visual essays also. So the idea is to join all these different approaches to the topic at hand, in this mm-hmm. case, masculinities, and then it always talks about appearance or fashion mm-hmm. press. Yeah, yeah. So once you settle on your theme, mm-hmm. h- how do you go about sort of fleshing that out? Do you decide on the theme first and then start finding material, or are you gathering material and realising that there's a theme in mm-hmm. it? I, I, it's usually the other way around, theme first, mm-hmm. and then I, I build on that. But in this case, masculinities, a theme that is connected to the university where I work as mm-hmm. a research fellow. So London College of Fashion has a year-long masculinities hub, mm-hmm. it's called. So they have lots of different projects that are connected to this theme of masculinity in the plural, mm-hmm. you know, diversity, yeah, as we were yeah. talking about before. And when I heard about that, I thought... Ah, how interesting and unusual. And I'd never really thought of mm-hmm. masculinity. I'm so, you know, like a lot of women, so busy thinking about femininity and mm-hmm. feminism and, you know, what it mm-hmm. means to be a woman. So I, I suddenly putting this other hat on and thinking about what makes a man was very intriguing and attractive to me. The themes tend to also be quite different from one another. Before this yeah. one on masculinities, there was one on failure. Other themes in the past have been power, shame, magic. Mm-hmm. The next one that I'm working on now is on authenticity, in fact. Okay. So often uh-huh. they are themes that somehow are, let's say, in the zeitgeist. You know, it's just something that that I pick up on. You know, it's very hard. To, it's like saying, where does inspiration come from? Uh-huh. It's, yeah, yeah. it's no, but, just it's sort of but, but it's, comes it's, to yeah, you, but doesn't it's, it? It's interesting. That, that, that range of themes sums it up. I mean, they're very, very different and there's not a system to it. It's, it's what is in your head at the time and what seems to be... Flesh, yeah, it's something you can flesh out into. And because into an I'm issue. a yeah, because I'm a person in the world, mm-hmm. like typically what I feel, it mm-hmm. resonates with others. You know, mm-hmm. masculinities, for instance, it's a timely topic. So w- once I have my theme, I start just researching, reading as much as possible on the theme. Uh, what other fashion scholars have written, maybe just what has been written on the theme in general, mm-hmm. and then I try myself to connect it to. And that's clothing. both currently and historically. Yeah. yeah. And then also because I'm a part of LCF, there's mm-hmm. a network there of scholars, which is incredibly helpful. I can ask my colleagues for advice. Uh-huh. A lot of the contributors are scholars yeah. that come from LCF. Or I have an advisory board also in the story that's useful because when mm-hmm. I start a theme, you know, those people, about 50%, they come from academia and 50% from the industry. So... Often I have conversations with people, talk about the theme. Have you ever sort of got halfway into a theme and thought and had to drop it because? I, I, mm, when, no, when, when, no, okay. no, never. I just, I think that sometimes I get a little bit anxious because I'm finishing an issue and I have no clue what I want to do next. Mm-hmm. But then somehow it mm-hmm. just poof, like it comes <laughs> like that. With Vestoy, I know very well what I want in the issue. So I, I'm not the kind of editor that would have a, a stable of writers and then go and say, hey, I'm working on this theme, give me some, you know, do yeah, you have yeah, yeah. pitch something? No. Typically, I'm like, okay, 
I have this theme. I want this angle, this angle, this angle, this angle, and then I find the person who knows that's, about it exactly. Yeah. Especially when it comes to the the scholars, they would have written about the theme, but perhaps not in connection with clothing. So yeah. that's a, or you know, or I try and find also an angle for someone who knows a topic that could also be interesting for them to yeah. look at yeah. their topic of expertise from another angle. So uh, you've decided the theme and you've, you've found the specialists who are going to write about the various subjects and the texts are coming in. So it very much starts with those texts. Always. The text-led yeah. process. Absolutely. When you flick through, I mean, everything we've said about it implies that there's not many images in this magazine, but it's very pictorial as well. Do you commission a lot of photography or is it are the images found to match? Um, I don't want the images so much to be illustrations. I want the images to have their own take on the topic so that, well, so that you can read a text and then see the accompanying images and get another take on the topic through the images. A good example of that is the piece we're going to hear read shortly, Beggars and Choosers, which was written by Johannes Lenhard. Tell us how that piece came about. So his PhD work is on homeless people on the streets of Paris. Mm -hmm. And Johannes and I met and we got talking and he told me about his research. This was maybe eight months or so before I'd started even working on this issue and knew what the theme was or anything. And eventually when I started to put the issue together, I remembered what he'd told me about his work. And in Paris, you see homeless people living in tents, you know, on street corners. Mm -hmm. It's something that I'm, you know, as any one of us living in a big city, you know, you're confronted mm -hmm. with, with yeah. people who live in the street every day. When you live in the street, you have such a different relationship to your possessions and to your garments than anybody else would have because the things that you wear, they have to make you look a certain way, but they also have to protect you in a way that I don't have to worry mm -hmm. too much about, you know. So we, we started anyway to talk about what might be a good angle to better understand the relationship that homeless men have to garments. What kind of garments are the most important to mm -hmm. someone who lives in the street? Like, what have you noticed? Because a lot of his work is field work. So he started telling me, well, underwear, for instance, that's something that's mm -hmm. really important. You you know, having clean underwear or socks, you know, but or the coat is yeah. incredibly important, you know, especially when it's cold, of course. There's a, one of the interviews in particular majors on the coat, and it's a great episode of the essentialness of, of, of mm. that particular garment. Now, a fashion magazine looking at what homeless people wear. Were you worried about how it might be perceived when you, when you were approaching it? Or? No, never worried, because when you just describe it like that, it might make you think of derelict in Zoolander. It's like when you want to describe the silliness of fashion or yeah, how out of yeah, touch fashion yeah, is, yeah. that's your typical example. Yes. But the thing is that when a reader picks the story up and starts flicking through it, you get very quickly a sense of mm -hmm. what you're holding in your hands. And satire is, you know, for better or worse, not my strong point. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted that topic in the issue because I wanted to say that everybody each one of us needs to care about what we're wearing, you know, even if fashion, as we know it, or the fashion industry might, you know, be light years away from your everyday existence. It doesn't mean that the garments you wear are any less important. In fact, in this case, for the men that Johannes interviewed, they're perhaps more important. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I wanted to say that even people that you walk past in the street, you know, a hundred times a day care about their appearance. They care about... Uh, well they, well, they have a practical concern with what they're wearing in terms of yes, survival. Yes, that's true. But the, this is what I found so interesting about Johannes's article. It's not just practical. I mean, to me, I thought 
without having any experience of talking to someone living in the street about what they're wearing, I thought, yeah, I can see the practical aspect. You know, shoes have to be comfortable. You walk far. You know, your coat has to be warm but not too heavy. You know, all those things. But the fact is that just because you live in the street doesn't mean that you have any less sense of your style, right? You yeah. know, you have the same concerns. Of, of self. Exactly. Yeah. You want yeah. to also somehow express who you see yourself to mm-hmm. be. Well, that's that's what I thought was brilliant about the piece was that at the exact opposite end of satire, it spoke of of us all. It spoke of a, a sort of common relationship with clothing, both from a functional but also from a sense of self-identity. And mm-hmm. so it speaks far more broader than the actual subject in hand, which I think is always the sign of a great piece. I liked also how with Johannes, or he proposed to do it as little vignettes. You know, mm-hmm. we, we settled on five garments that, from his experiences, were the garments that are the most telling. And then I liked also how he put himself in the story. In this case, I think it's so important because the, all the interviews that he did are all about his interaction as a journalist a subject response to you always has to do with what you put out. So it feels very transparent, I think, in this case, like for him to write himself into the story. And then he interviews five men. Each man talks about one garment. And then Johannes describes the environment. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But, but there's the situation with the garment and there's some, again, sort of factual information. But there's also some really delicate sort of observation of relationships, which is very subtle, not overloaded or weighted with great meaning. It's just reported. And the piece is accompanied by a series of photographs. You could easily have sent out a photographer out onto the streets and, and we could have seen these people that somehow portraits of the people would be sort of brutal next to the, the subtlety of the texts. Just talk through how you did end up illustrating the... Uh... Typically, I don't like images to be illustrations. And I think that I much prefer the reader to imagine what the person looks Mm -hmm. like through their words. When it came to this piece on homeless men, the topic is very sensitive, right? How you represent homelessness is tricky. Like, I didn't want images that felt heroic, you know, your kind of Andres Serrano-type images. And I also didn't want images that looked too trashy or too Mm -hmm. violent. I wanted something that had dignity, but I didn't want portraits, like more scenes, you know? My art directors and I did a lot of research trying to find, you know, the right Mm -hmm. picture. And one day we just came across this series of images by a Chilean-American photographer called Camilo José Vergara. They were just perfect. I mean, the colors are are kind of a bit cold. The the Mm -hmm. one image, for instance, just betrays a tent, just like the ones I see all the time in Paris. And he has scenes like shot from some distance, you know, you can... Maybe even imagine that the people he photographed, they didn't notice that he was uh-huh. there or, yeah. or yeah. maybe they were so used to him, they stopped paying attention. It, it strikes me there are sort of portraits of the state of homelessness rather than portraits of people. To me, that's the dignity of the both mm. what Johannes wrote and the images that Camilo shot. We were so pleased when we found the images and so pleased that we got permission to reprint them. I yeah, it's. I think this story actually is one of the the stories I'm the happiest about. Somehow, just you know, the images clicked, the text mm-hmm. clicked. It, I was proud to have had the idea and and proud to have been fortuitous enough to have met Johannes at exactly the right <laughs> time. And sometimes it Great. just works, absolutely, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us about the magazine and about the article. Uh, I think we should go off and listen to Beggars and Choosers now. Thanks a lot, Anya. Thank you.
Beggars and Choosers by Johannes Lenhard. The street is a place of force, competition, power games and violence. The most aggressive and strong among the men who live here ultimately win the struggle for the street's scarce resources, money, food, a sleeping space. They are forced to compete, to fight, often violently, often against the law. This is what we see when we walk down the street, trying not to make eye contact with a man begging on the steps of the metro. As one of Europe's main urban centres, Paris is rife with homelessness. Because sleeping rough and begging is not illegal here, the way the gendarmerie patrol homelessness differs significantly from cities like New York and London. The policy is laissez-faire as long as the people on the street are not violent or aggressive. As a result, homelessness is more visible, and when the temperature rises in summer, it's not uncommon to see people living in tents along the Seine or on street corners. The areas around Gare du Nord and Gare de l'Est are crowded with the SDF, sans domicile fixe, without fixed abode, as well as with the security forces impeding them. At times, up to 12 different types of police and security, from army officers and national police to the SNCF and RATP armed forces to walkie-talkie bearing security guards, patrol the stations on the outlook for aggressive beggars, drug dealing or using. A first source of conflict is therefore often with these official forces. At the same time, safe sleeping spaces on the street, housing in shelters and money from the public are in short supply and therefore contested within groups of homeless people themselves. Violence, and knowing when and how to use it, is an important skill. Acting like a man, as someone who is able to defend himself at all times, becomes a necessary outer shell in this context. Stereotypes about violent and ragged men on the street might be hackneyed, but as classifications used by all, from academics to daily news sources, they have entered the public consciousness and stayed there. However, despite their often slipshod outward appearance, there is a more complex, nuanced portrait of the average homeless man that the typical passerby often isn't able to see. For instance, Eric a man from Hungary in his late 30s, struggles with addiction and lets me observe its effect on him. Pascal and Laurie have become friends on the street and joke about each other's daydreams and small luxuries. Francois has redeveloped a certain taste as well as idiosyncrasies when it comes to his choice of clothes. But you would never get this impression by walking through Gare du Nord. With the stories that follow, I'm hoping to deconstruct the tough, violent masculinity so often linked to men in the street. I would like to paint a subtler portrait through a handful of stories revolving around the first thing we notice about the homeless, their clothes. By looking at five different pieces of attire, a t-shirt, a bag, a pair of boxer shorts, a coat and some shoes, as well as the men who wear them, I will unfold some of the ambiguity surrounding the sartorial choices of the homeless. Each of these garments are entry points into different parts of these men's lives. They symbolise friendship, violence, drugs, relationships, sex, money, and, in particular, home. The T-shirt. Oh yes, I was in hospital yesterday. I was in a fight and the guy knocked me out. He was massive. He'd just come out of prison. We call him Terminator. He wanted money from me. I don't really know what happened after I got knocked out, but somebody must have called the pompier because I woke up in hospital. Like this. As I approach a small group of homeless men I know quite well, I'm struck by what I see. Aaron, small Darish and tall Darish, 
are sitting on a bench in the middle of Place Franz Liszt, surrounded by humming traffic. I cross the street, darting between cars circling Gardenor, as small Darius stands up. His T-shirt and coat almost fall off him. They are cut right through. His upper body is barely covered by the two garments that hang from his shoulders in bold strips. I can see his bare back from behind as I move toward the bench. It's not the first time I see somebody who has been beaten up. Fights happen all the time on the street. Almost every week one of my key informants tells me about conflicts and their usually violent resolution. Mostly these fights are about marginalities. Stealing a can of beer, sitting on the wrong bench, looking at someone in the wrong way. Small Darius can't remember what started this particular conflict, but he remembers that it was in the hospital that doctors cut his clothes to shreds. I wasn't in a good state and they just wanted to get me out of these clothes, he tells me. I think they just cut through them with their scissors. They didn't give me different clothes this morning. Small Darius spent the night in hospital, but in the morning he immediately wanted to leave. He doesn't like institutions. And he doesn't like to stay in hospital after a fight. It's something only weaklings do. Only a five-minute walk separates the hospital and Place Franz Liszt. Here he is welcomed back by his friends, all other Polish men, all of whom sleep in the area. They share tents, try and get into emergency housing for the night or sleep under the closest and most comfortable roof they can find. They look after each other. Small Darius is just about to change his clothes, for a brief moment he stands topless while quietly continuing the conversation with me. Aaron has just given him a new t-shirt. He throws his ruined shirt in the bin and we make our way to Liederpreis to stock up on beer. The bag. It's the first thing I search for when I wake up in the morning. Sometimes when I can't sleep at night, I hold it in my hand so nobody can open it. It's precious. Originally from Hungary... Eric is explaining the importance of the little black bag he always carries. He's been on the streets of Paris for almost five years, having worked in Spain for a decade before that. Now, he opens a small, square-shaped pouch while we talk. As he unpacks, a world unfolds in front of me somewhere in the parking lot corner underneath La Defense, where I'm visiting him at his sleeping place. A white box immediately stands out. It's called Le Kit Plus, its shell is full of writing. A warning message from the Ministry of Health, several helpline numbers, instructions of how to use the equipment, a detailed list of its contents. Inside, on top of everything else, is a condom. Most people just throw that away. Underneath there are two syringes, already equipped with short, fixed needles, the type often used by patients with diabetes. Two small containers of distilled water, Two sterile mini-metal cups and alcohol pads accompany the syringes. Eric opens the small front pocket of the pouch and takes out a small bottle. 20 millilitres of methadone in a brown glass container. The methadone is not supposed to be injected, but is given out freely to registered clients by various risk reduction associations by the train station as a heroin substitute. Most people don't like to just drink it. Shooting up produces a nicer, more immediate feeling. Eric unscrews the bottle. It opens with a click. With several surprisingly quick and precise movements of his hand, he unwraps the cup, fills it with water and methadone and prepares a syringe. He rolls up his sweater, looks at the smattering of perforations he has made across his arm over the past few days 
and decides on the one to use this time. He is shaking. The needle is still in Eric's hand as he remembers something else left in his bag. A little plastic box containing a glass tube, two metal filters and a plastic bag with a small, thumbnail-sized white rock. I was lucky and a guy gave me some crack just before I left the station yesterday, he tells me. He melts the crack into the metal filter of his pipe, lights up and inhales. He smiles at me. <laughs> This'll help keep me going, keeps me awake. I didn't sleep for three days last week. I had enough money. Ten minutes later, Eric puts the black bag around his neck again. He collects all the utensils, puts them back into the two little boxes, and closes each one carefully. Then he hides them in the little black pouch. Like so many other homeless drug users with similar little black pouches around their necks, Eric will replicate this exact routine throughout his day. Beg for money, score drugs, shoot up, smoke, take a short break, repeat. The boxer shorts. Today, I called him Prince. Usually, he tells me how arrogant I am to not want to beg anymore or because I wear certain clothes and go to the hairdresser rather than just shave my head. But today, he was the Prince. He got up at 6.30 and made a big deal out of spraying deodorant all over himself. And then he was really keen to go to the people who give out fresh underwear. He told me about his rendezvous with Marie, his social worker. You never know what might happen he said. Pascal is getting excited telling me about Laurie's special day. Pascal and Laurie are friends. They share a sleeping camp located in a train somewhere in the south of Paris. Pascal tells me that Laurie doesn't usually change his underwear every day. This is common among homeless men. Sometimes they wear their boxes several days in a row before throwing them away. Nobody wants to carry their boxes around and wait for the weekly wash at a homeless shelter in the centre. They start to smell too quickly just like socks, and they are easily available. So on the day of Laurie's appointment, the pair walked to Amitié, a day centre for homeless people in the west of Paris, where they knew they could get clean underwear. It opened early. I saw them later that day at another day centre, this one close to Gare du Nord, where I volunteer regularly. This is where Laurie has his rendezvous. He seems tense and excited. I know Pascal is half-joking. The likelihood of Laurie hooking up with his social worker is small. But it happens. Pascal, in fact, has seen his own social worker outside office hours several times. She once paid for a hotel. He assured me that nothing really sexual happened. No way, she is still a virgin. Muslim and stuff. Underwear, this most intimate of garments, is as important to the homeless as they are to the rest of us. As Pascal explains... You want to be normal, or as normal as possible. I'm not in a good state to have a relationship or anything now. I already feel bad seeing my social worker. She could lose her job. But at least I can try to feel as normal as possible. The coat. What you wear is important. If you look broken, you can't expect too much help. If you're dirty, people keep a distance. You don't have to look like an SDF. Carlo is an experienced beggar. He'd already been in this line of work for two years when I met him last summer. I prefer working in big and open spaces like in front of Gare Saint-Lazare. People need to see me first. I need to have eye contact with them for a couple of seconds so they can see that I'm not aggressive or disgusting or weird or anything. Carlo is concerned about his looks. It's important to him how his outer shell, 
his coat appears. Decent clothes make it easier to earn money, easier to approach people on a more or less equal level. A clean and undamaged coat turns Carlo, at least at first sight, into one of them. Ultimately, it is a sign of normalcy, of fitting in. It makes him appear as if in an emergency situation, at least for the snap second it takes for us to make the decision so important to him, to give or not to give. But the coat also comes with a second purpose. It's the smallest possible of homes, a sleeping bag and a comforter when sleeping rough. Carlo goes on, It's such a weird feeling when you're trying to sleep outside for the first time. I mean, without even a sleeping bag. Since childhood, we're used to feeling something on top of us when we're sleeping, something heavy. Turning a coat into a duvet is better than wearing it somehow. It feels more secure and warm. The shoes. What's the most important piece of clothing for you? Shoes. Definitely shoes. I'm running around all day long. I need good shoes. They need to fit. As Francois and I walk to the Vesta Boutique, the clothing bank of the Croix Rouge, he explains what he is looking for in shoes. Comfort and sturdiness. Sometimes when I walk around the whole day in the same shoes and it starts raining, it's really disgusting. The wetness soaks everything through, and when I take my shoes off in the evening, they're glued to my foot. It's repulsive. We are greeted warmly by the people at the clothing bank and immediately taken to the back room where clothes reserved for people in need are kept. It's Francois' first time and he's surprised by the amount of clothes on offer. He gets a new T-shirt, a belt, a pair of jeans, underwear and socks in minutes. And then we get to the shoes. This is where the unexpected complications start. I don't like these at all. They're not strong enough. These don't fit. They're too big. Do you have something that goes up a little, like above my ankles? These already have a hole. Francois is incredibly picky when it comes to this last and, according to him, most important item of clothing. It takes us a while to settle on a pair of sneakers with a thick rubber sole that fit him almost perfectly. By that time, the patience of the Vestibutique volunteer is stretched thin, as is mine. How can somebody be so fussy about something offered for free? This was my first thought during this interaction with Francois. Beggars can't be choosers. Talking to him about it afterwards, however, made me aware of my error. Being on the street doesn't mean we give up our desire to feel in control of our own lives or that we're ready to forfeit our ability to make choices. Perhaps most importantly, there are moments on the street that are not about force, violence or pressure, nor about displaying manliness according to the tired tropes of this outmoded attitude. These are the moments that leave room for vulnerability, for dependency and affection. My experience with Francois is perhaps the most explicit demonstration of this, but Laurie's daydream and the sartorial preparations that went with it are similarly telling. Competition. Not for money or space, but for attention, sensuality, love comes to the fore here. Laurie dares to imagine a different future for himself, and his choice of clothing reflects his dreams. Eric's little black bag symbolises his dependency, the suffering he tries to forget and the pain induced by the drugs, but it also allows him to put all these emotions, the mixed bag of feelings, away. He can, so to speak, contain both them and it and, when needed, transform into the strong defender of his territory, the money-maker and fighter he also needs to be. Francois's shoes are a means of transportation, but also of comfort and protection. 
and the care with which he selects them proves the importance of choosing right on every count. In all these instances, clothing becomes a tool, a way of approximating normalcy for those whose lives are anything but. Being out of control, fighting, struggling and causing scenes is perhaps what we associate with the men who live on the margins of society. I don't want to deny that this is part of their daily routine. Anthropologists like Dennis Webster and Jennifer Rowe and Stacey Walk have given a clear explanation for the frequency of competition and fighting. Short-term needs, such as procuring food and shelter and drugs, are pre-eminent and not easy to obtain. But being a man on the street also entails being dependent on support, help, others. In fact, already in the early 20th century, the sociologist and philosopher Georg Simmel defined being poor as exactly that. The poor person, sociologically speaking, is the individual who receives assistance because of this lack of means. Assistance is often about money and materiality. Carlo chooses a certain coat to make people give to him. But it can also be about social interaction, closeness, love and affection. Ultimately, life on the street as a man is first and foremost about finding normalcy both as a tactic and a deep desire and dream. Socially, this is expressed in bonds and friendship and love which very often do not go back into the past to old friends and family. As the social scientist Christopher Jenks found while studying a group of homeless people in Chicago in the 1990s, a third said they had no contact with their relatives, even though they almost all had kin in the Chicago area. Support instead comes from the street and from interactions with other people in similar situations. It comes in the form of a t-shirt given to small Darius by his friend, and in the joking relationship between Laurie and Pascal. It often comes in the form of the immaterial gift, in the form of giving time, listening to people, making visits. Without these practices of daily happiness, life on the street would indeed be unbearable. They introduce a certain sense of hope and well-being and, in philosopher Lauren Balant's words, are necessary to keep on living on and to look forward to being in the world. Ultimately, the garments belonging to the people I've met on the street do not always scream poverty or violence. They might at times be messy, but for those who care to look beyond their shambolic appearance, they are also the belongings of men who need what men need everywhere. Each other. At MagCulture, we love magazines. To hear more about what we do, visit our website, magculture.com. This podcast is presented by WeTransfer Studios and MagCulture. Visit wetransfer.com slash thisworks to see more of our creative collaborations.